1: the power of their data wasabi, another Boston based championship
0: team. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to a happy Rico
2: Bronia. We're going to do something very, very, very positive today. We're only going to talk about good things. We're going to talk about the great free agent signings in the history of the New York Mets. Sometimes we talk too much negative. I don't know why I do that. I don't know why you do that. So today, it's all positive. Now, a couple of things in terms of free agent signings. We need to clarify here. And you tell me how you view a free agent signing because there is one little debate, though this will play more into the bad free agent signings, which will happen at a later date. When you trade for a guy and a guy is on your team or you develop that guy and then that guy gets to free agency and you re-sign him. Does that count as a free agent signing? To me, it does not. Pete, how do you clarify that? I agree. Once they are on your team,
3: whether you've traded for them, whether you brought worked with the system, and they hit the market, they're still your
2: possession until somebody else takes them. Very good. I agree with you. Now, for pro-free agent signings, for good free agent signings, the one that would eliminate, just so we can mention this right off the top, and there's no debate, is Mike Piazza, because as you recall, the Mets traded for Mike Piazza. They traded Preston Wilson, Ed Yornell, Jeff Goetz. He comes over in the middle of 1998 and then becomes a free agent. And during that kind of signing window, the Mets re-signed him to the record-breaking $90-plus deal. That's not a free agent signee. Now, the reason I ask that is because at a later date, I'm going to be really negative. And we're going to talk about bad free agent signings And there's a lot of them that fit that mold, specifically Oliver Perez. But now that we got that off our chest, let's talk about good signings. So here's how it's going to work. I want to refresh everyone's memory. I want to refresh your memory, Pete. I even want to refresh my memory. So we're going to go through what I deem, and if I'm missing one, certainly at me, if you will, the free agent signings that really were good, or at least could be in the discussion of good and productive. And I came up with about 12 or 13 of them. Once we go through them, you know, rather quickly, or maybe not, now it'll be refreshing our mind, and we can all determine the four best free agent signings in the history of the Mets. Why four? Mount Rushmore, damn it. The Mount Rushmore of free agent signings in the history of the New York Mets. So let's start In the early 90s, because really, that's when the Mets started signing free agents. And I'm going to surprise you with something, because sometimes there are free agent signings that history will tell you were bad, but if you look at it closer, maybe they weren't bad. What I mean by that is Bobby Bonilla. I'm going to start right there. Now, why would Bobby Bonilla be discussed? Hear me out, Pete. Bobby Benilla talked about all these years later because of the fact that they're still paying him. It's the most overrated, stupid, lazy discussion in the history of sports. So this will help you out when you're with your family next time and someone wants to make a joke about Bobby Benilla. Say, hey, can you tell me about Bruce Souter's contract? Oh, Oh, you don't know? Google it, bitch. That's right. Just make sure that you don't say bitch to like a family member who you love. And that's kind of disrespectful. But the whole Bobby Benilla contract thing is much ado about nothing. It's just an excuse for us to ha- hate the Wilpons. There's other reasons to not like the Wilpons. So here's the deal with Bobby Benilla At age 29 years old, the Mets stole him away from the Pittsburgh Pirates and paid him a four-year, $23 million deal. The problem was Bobby Benilla had a big effing mouth and at his opening press conference had a smile on his face and said to the media, <laughs> You can't whip this smile off my face. And then made some comment about, I'll show you the Bronx. So Bobby did not get off to a great start. He also didn't have the greatest first year in 1992, which is sort of similar a pattern you'll notice with free agents through the history of the Mets, good or bad. His first year here, he only hit 19 home runs. He only drove in 70 runs. He missed about 35 games due to injury, and his OPS was down to a 779. Not the worst numbers in the world, not what you expected. But here's what hurt Bobby. The team sucked. Following year, worst team money could buy, 1993. He hit 34 home runs. He had an 874 OPS. Is that bad? No. Was his defense crappy? Yes. Was his attitude crappy? Absolutely. But he was productive. 1994, before the strike, 20 home runs, 67 RBIs, 878 OPS. Not bad. Not bad at all. Then in 1995, this would be the year the Mets would finally trade him because final year of his contract, Mets are going nowhere. They want to dump him. He had a 984 OPS, hit 10 home runs, drove in 46 runs. They traded him to the Baltimore Orioles in the deal for Alex Ochoa. You can't blame Bobby Bonilla that Alex Ochoa wasn't very good. He was a five-tool bust. That's not Bonilla's fault. So here's my problem here, Pete. I just gave you the numbers. Was Bobby Bonilla a bad free agent signing?
3: No, but... They remember him. Hey, a lot of Mets fans, I think, will still go back to later on in '99. Well, that- hold on,
2: hold on, hold on, <laughs> hold on. That's not the same. They I traded know. for him years later because they wanted to dump Mel Rojas's contract. God bless him. And so they took back Bobby Bonilla. And yes, he was playing freaking poker with Ricky Henderson, and he hit 150 in 1999. But in fairness, that's not a part of the free agent signing that took place in 1992.
3: And you're very accurate with that, but that's the problem. That's the sour taste the Mets fans remember. And that's why that along with the deferred contract, which again is nothing. it's At this point in time, it's nothing. But you mix those two together, it on um, uh, to to Mets fans' minds, it it feels so negative. But reality
2: is no the years that he was here, besides the first year, he was good. He he was a productive Met. Now here's the truth. I I, I understand this. This is when I started kind of figuring out baseball and really uh, watching baseball every day. 1992, I always say, is the first year I really remember. In 1993, I was off the charts into it. Obviously, those were not good years. I picked. I mean, what can you do? I don't pick it. I'm a kid. He became the face of the worst team money could buy. And so much like, and this is long before our time, I understand that much like Horace Clark became known as the era of bad Yankee baseball. Bobby Bonilla became the face of bad Met baseball. And it was also his dealing with the media. There was a story that he called up Jay Horowitz in the middle of a game to connect to the official score. So he could yell at them for calling an error on him defensively. Bobby was a problem. I, I acknowledge that. I'm not trying to tell you this was the greatest thing ever. I guess what I want to shed the light on is that he was actually productive as an offensive player. It was not him coming here and sucking for four years. There were a lot of things that contributed to not us not liking him. Uh, certainly the team was bad. Not all his fault. He was bad defensively, whether it was at third base or right field. He didn't have a great attitude. But when you look at the four-year, $23 million deal, uh, he actually offensively was pretty productive. The other guy who kind of fits that is Eddie Murray. The Mets signed Eddie Murray to a two-year contract. It was the same offseason. They brought Bobby Bonilla in. Eddie Murray was at the end of his Hall of Fame career, was 36 years old. But One thing I remember about Eddie is he was steady. He went out and played 156 games in 1992. He played 154 games in 1993. Solid numbers, nothing amazing, but went out there and played. And so while Murray and Bonilla are a part of this horrific era in Mets baseball, they performed. and That's just the reality of it. They weren't the main culprits for why the Mets were bad. So I just wanted to mention them. I'm not saying they are going to be on the Mount Rushmore, but... They certainly need to at least be considered and certainly have to be remarked as good free agent signings, I think. Because if you ask a Met fan, okay, tell me the worst free agent signings in the history of the Mets, they get to mention Bobby Bonilla. And I get it. I get why they say that. But 779, 874, 878, 984, those are his OPSs. If Francisco Lindor does that in the next four years, we're very excited. I'm not kidding. We're very excited. Oh, yeah. All right, let's get to this one. This could be... It's a weird free agent signing because he didn't come here with hype. In fact, when he was signed as a free agent, nobody knew who he was. And that was the signing of a former replacement player, Rick Reed. The New York Mets signed Rick Reed at age 32 years old. They plopped him in the rotation in 1997, and he had his best season of his career. He would never match it again. He went 13 and nine with a 2.89 ERA, and he went out and threw a 208 innings season. He follows that up in 1998 by going 16 and 11 with a 348 ERA and those 212 innings. Here's what's unfortunate while Rick Reed was a very solid part of the 99 team and the 2000 team, he wasn't nearly as good as what he was in 97 and 98. In fact, it was a stretch of games. I think it was 1998 where he had a couple of four inning perfect games. Like he kind of flirted with perfect games numerous times. He was nicknamed. Mini Maddox was very similar in terms of his ability to throw strikes. But in 1999, he missed a few uh, starts due to injury Eleven and five, four five eight ERA, so kind of ballooned up. Two thousand eleven and five, four eleven ERA, and finally his final season with the team was in 01. They ended up trading him for Matt Lawton. He went eight and six with a three four eight ERA. I think in terms of the expectations for him, uh, he was as good as it gets because he didn't come here the way Bobby Benilla came here. He didn't come here the way Eddie Murray came here. He came here as. A scab. I mean, that's how he was referred, a replacement player. And he became a really solid part of a rotation that made the postseason in back-to-back years. And he was also the starting pitcher in the only game the New York Mets won in the 2000 World Series. He was the starter of Game 3 of that World Series against El Duque. So, major props to Rick Reed. I know it's weird because you don't think of an under-the-radar guy in that tone, but as very solid free agent signing by the New York Mets going into the season of 1997. Okay. This one, it's funny. I'm trying to be positive. We're doing good free agent signings, and I'm going to have to bring up guys that we hate. Because... Matsui. (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, this is a really interesting discussion. We're about to have it. Because I think I may say this name, and you'll say that was not a good free agent signing you ready four years 42.5 million dollars in 2003 for tom glavin now before we go into the details tom glavin has a free agent signing first word that comes to mind uh, good really yeah it,
3: the, the, it ended terribly Yes, that's that. I mean, that's that's, that. that, That's how I
2: could put it, but I thought he was good. I I did, he was serviceable. Yeah, no, no, that's the word. I think you just hit it. And Tom Glavin came in horribly and left horribly because you mentioned obviously the last start he ever made game one or last start he ever made for the Mets. He obviously went back to Atlanta, but game 162, 2007, the Marlins, he was awful, it was as bad as it gets. His first start as a Met. Was almost as bad. <laughs> Opening day 2003 against the Chicago Cubs, a game the Mets would lose 15 to two or 15 to three. I forget the exact score, but he sandwiched his Met career with the worst possible starts that you could ever have. If you could look past those two things, okay, and you could look past the fact that he's a Hall of Famer who didn't pitch like a Hall of Famer, Tom Glavin was really, really reliable as a New York Met, because one thing that's really important from a starting pitcher is availability, It's going out there every five days. I'm going to give you these numbers around Tommy's five years with the New York Mets. Yeah, it was five years. He signed a four-year contract, though. Did he end up getting an extra year? Maybe there was an extra. I, you know what? I, I, can you look that up, by the way? Because he signed a four-year contract, but he actually spent five years with the Mets. So maybe it was a fifth year. Maybe there was a, a vesting option. I, I Honestly, I don't remember. I thought it was a four-year, $42 million deal when they signed him. So he ended up being here for five years. Maybe they re-signed him to a one-year deal. Well, possible? yeah, because it,
3: it was actually a three-year deal with a fourth-year option. So where the hell did the fifth year come from?
2: They must have re-signed him. Okay, yeah. that's fine. So I guess the fifth year doesn't necessarily count on the whole free agency thing, but whatever. If they Um, only knew what was going to happen in the last game of the season. I know. Could have have beaten him to it. Uh, 2003, (laughs) he makes 32 starts. 2004, he makes 33 starts. 2005, 33 starts. 2006, 32 starts. 2007, 34 starts. He threw 200 innings in three of the five years he was with the New York Mets. I'm bitter against him because of game five of the NLCS in 2006, more than even game 162 in 2007. The Mets gave him a lead. I think it was the fourth inning. Game five, swing game in the whole series, immediately gave the lead back. And I remember watching that game on TV, and I looked at my dad and I said, this is why he's here. Like, this guy's here for this effing moment. And he blew it. And it really pissed me off. So I actually am bitter at him more for that game and that performance than I even am for game 162. But it goes back to the old question. Would you rather have a guy that's great but misses half the time or would you rather have a guy that goes out there, gets the ball every five days, and he's okay? Because Glavin's numbers in his middle three years with the Mets were okay. They were middle to back of the rotation kind of stuff. I'll give them to you. 2003, bad first year. What else is new? 9 and 14 with a 4.5 ERA. 2004, 11 and 14 with a 3.6 ERA. Okay, 3.6. 2005, 13 and 13 with a 3.5 ERA. And then 2006, where the Mets obviously had a dominant regular season, he was 15 and 7 with a 3.82 ERA. And then he closed his Met career with a 4.45 ERA. The numbers are not Hall of Fame worthy, and that's the thing you have to look past. He was never going to be the guy he was not in Atlanta, but for five years, that son of a bitch went out there and pitched every five days. So I would define it as a reliable signing. He went out there and he pitched, and there's some value to that, but none of us will be able to look past the way it started
0: and the way it ended. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, this one's a good one. Now, we're all going to be happy about this one. Robin Ventura.
2: The Mets side, Robin Ventura going into the 1999 season after they choked out of the 98 season to a four-year, $32 million deal. He was 31 years old, and he had an awesome first year. Tremend- really the anti-other guy. So many times guys have come here and they've struggled in their first year, and then they pick it up. Ventura was the complete opposite. He would actually never match what he did in his first year. He had 32 home runs. He drove in 120 runs. He had so many big hits in that 1999 season. Obviously, in the postseason, we think about the Grand Slam single, but even during the regular season, he got a huge hit to win that Saturday night game against the Pirates, game 161 that kind of set the Mets up to eventually get to the one-game playoff. He had that game in which he had grand slams and both ends of a doubleheader. He was awesome. Plus, we can't forget the glove. I mean, defensively, he was as good as it gets. He was a big part of the greatest defensive infield in the history of Major League Baseball, at least deemed by SI. So amazing first year by Robin. The problem was he fell off. Two thousand. 24 home runs, 84 RBIs, a 777 OPS. And in 2001, 142 games, 21 home runs, 61 RBIs, a 778 OPS. The Mets actually traded him during the offseason of what would have been his final year with the Mets. They traded him to the New York Yankees of all teams for David Justice. Big name trade that really turned into nothing because the Mets flipped David Justice. I think a few weeks later for a reliever, Mark Guthrie was his name. And Ventura ended up having a good year with the Yankees in 2 So he actually went over there and played pretty well. I'd say it was a good signing, despite the way it ended. I think sometimes when you give a guy a contract like that, you know you're not getting the full four years of awesomeness. But he was great in the first year. And even in those two years where he wasn't the same offensive player, he was so good defensively so good defensively, and became one of the leaders in that room for a team that made the postseason in back-to-back years. So, Robin Ventura, hell of a And You'd agree with that, right, Hoff?
3: Oh, no question, because like you said, too, the moments he gave fans in a year where they made the playoffs, it was significant, and it was, uh, again, like, I definitely I think uh, you nailed one for the Mountain Rushmore for me.
2: Oh! Oh, you spoke too soon. He may not make the Mount Rushmore. (laughs) By the way, my next guy, and I love this guy. I I genuinely like him. He's a good dude. He's been on the show with us in the past before. I think, though, his signing becomes overrated because we like him so much. And that guy signed a four-year, $26 million contract right before the 2003 season. And that guy is Cliff Floyd. Cliff Floyd just didn't play enough. That that was my biggest issue with Cliff, and I and I think in a way he was looked at as a tough guy who battled through injury and played through injury, and I appreciate that, but the facts are the facts. He didn't play enough. 2003, 108 games. Very productive in those 108 games. Had an 894 OPS, hit 18 home runs, drove in 68 runs. Fantastic. Team sucked. Cliff barely played. Following season 04, another year in which the Mets sucked, only 113 games. Same numbers, though. 18 home runs, 63 RBIs, barely played. The one year he played was 2005. He went out there and played 150 games, hit 34 home runs, had an 863 OPS. Mets had a fun year in 05. That was like the return to relevance season. They were sort of in a pennant race, fell out of it early September. That was the first year of Beltron, the first year of Pedro Martinez, the final year of Mike Piazza and a great year at a Cliff Floyd. And 2006 was just, it was a lost season, man. Cliff Floyd was hurt most of the year, didn't produce that much when he played. Uh, I have two images of Cliff Floyd from the 06 season. Number one, he caught the final out that won the Mets the National League East. It was a fly ball to left field with Billy Wagner on the mound. And I could still see Cliff with his arms up. Cool moment. And then and this is not his fault, Willie Randolph using him in game seven to pinch hit, when with first and second and nobody out, down by two runs in the bottom of the ninth inning, I thought at least, go to Tom Glavin and lay a bunt down. Now, maybe all these years later we look at that differently. Uh, Bunting has sort of died. Even my view on Bunting has certainly changed. But the reason in the moment I didn't want Cliff up there was because he couldn't move. He could not run. And if he hit the ball on the ground, it was a double play. And that, to me, was the worst-case scenario. When Cliff came up, though, Shea was electric. And Willie was trying to catch a moment and thought, can you imagine Cliff Lloyd gets a fastball, hits a ball over the phone? Oh, my God. And I had visions of it. I think we all dreamt of it. But when Cliff struck out, I actually had a sigh of relief because I said, no double play. Okay, move on to the next. And obviously, the inning did not exactly work out. Speaking of which, (laughs) let's be honest. Spoiler alert. Whether you like him or you don't, he's on the Mount Rushmore of free agent signings. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Carlos Beltran. Carlos signed a seven-year, $119 million contract going into the 2005 season. So here's the deal with Carlos seven-year contract, he had three full awesome seasons. He had three seasons in which, not saying he was bad, missed a lot of time. And then the extra season was year one where he played, but he wasn't good and really has become the poster boy of the first year in New York syndrome for a big free agent signee. He played 151 games, the second most games he played in any season as a Met, but only hit 16 home runs, had a 745 OPS, and Met fans were very, very underwhelmed. Very underwhelmed.
3: Right. So, so I'm going to come to his defense. He came in, and they put him in right field, if I'm correct. Correct? They no, counter- they moved Mike Cameron to right field. Is that what it was? Yes. They had... Now, the games he missed, I believe, was after that collision. That yeah, awful so collision.
2: Cameron moves to right. He was devastated because Cameron was a really good defensive center fielder. Beltron was very good, too. Uh, it's it's tough. They were both really good, aggressive defensive center fielders. They moved Cameron to right. In San Diego, they converged because they both have the center field mentality Cameron took the worst of it. Beltron was hurt, uh, but he didn't miss much time. I mean, he ended up playing 150 games that season.
3: Well, my defense was that they were messing with him because I thought there was something going on. It, it, maybe it was just uh, the first-year nerves. And again, yeah. the big thing is that the, the reason why a lot of people were not happy with him is because the rumor is he went back to the Yankees and said, what would it take? I'll take less money to go play for you.
2: So that was a true rumor. Uh, I had Carlos on a few years later, said not true. Didn't happen. You could believe it. You don't have to believe it. But here's why I don't buy that as a reason to dislike him. I remember when the Mets signed him in January of 2006, and no Mets fan gave a crap about that. They were just so excited that here was this guy who dominated in the postseason. He's only 27 years old, 28 years old, and he's coming to our team. That became a convenient thing to dislike about him. That became a, oh, yeah, well, he wanted to be a Yankee. I mean, who gives a crap? C.C. Sabathia wanted to be a freaking Oakland A. Does that matter? <laughs> he signed with the Yankees. It doesn't matter. The excuse for Beltra, by the way, that I think is fair, and Carlos learned from it, as you'll see in the rest of his career, is Carlos was hurt in 2005, and he played through injury. And he learned the lessons of it, which is, if you don't perform, they're going to boo you. So it creates a question you got to ask yourself as an athlete: Would you rather battle through injury and play hurt, knowing it may affect your play, or would you rather say, "I'm not going to play. I'm not going to play till I'm healthy"? And if you look at the last three years Beltron had with the Mets, I I wouldn't say. Let me let me rephrase that. 2011, he was healthy. He got traded in the middle of the season, so let me take eleven out because he was healthy that year. 2010, 2009, he barely played. He, ba- he played 64 games in 10. He played 81 games in nine. I think there was controversy about a knee surgery he wanted that the Mets didn't want him to have. But I think that that first year influenced him where it was, I'm not going to play hurt. Why? So Met fans could think I suck. Comes back in 06, has an MVP caliber year, one of the great seasons in the history of the Mets franchise. 41 home runs, 116 RBIs, a 982 OPS, Comes back in 07, 33 home runs, 112 RBIs, 878 OPS. Comes back in 08, plays 161 games, 27 home runs, 112 RBIs, 876 OPS. Produced when he played in 09 and then in his final year of 2011, and by the way, thank you, Carlos, has a great stretch and the Mets are able to turn him into Zach Wheeler. So, thank you, Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I tell you, man, it's not perfect. But when you sign a guy to a seven-year contract and you get as much production as you got out of Carlos, even though he missed some time, I think that's an A free agent signing. I think you got to look back at that and say, that was great. I would do it again. Especially for the
3: length. Because again, you talking about like, we we touched on Bonilla, we touched on Ventura, we touched on a lot of these other guys. They didn't pan out for the length they had, like, one or two good years, but they we only signed him for
2: three or four. And they couldn't even go that far. Beltran right. gave you a, a lot of length. Gave you a lot of length. And one thing that is not fair uh, in terms of how people talk about Carlos is they think of the strikeout in 06 and say he wasn't clutch. It's ridiculous. Beltran was the most clutch player on the New York Mets those years. And, and unfortunately, because of the way 06 ended and because of – it's easy to forget good moments in 07 and 08 because of the way those seasons ended. You almost ignore how clutch Beltran was. I really thought, you know, just watching him every single day, he was the most clutch player they had. You know, we all love David Wright. He's a homegrown Matt. Beltran was more clutch than David Wright. He just was. I mean, it's not not hating. It's not extra love. It's just, it's a reality. And I think, unfortunately, because of the way things ended in 06, he doesn't get enough credit for being as clutch as he actually was.
1: I
3: agree, but there's a little bittersweetness between be behind Carlos Beltran because this is the thing, right? Oh six, they go to the playoffs. He strikes out. That's the end of the playoff era for the Mets and Carlos Beltran. But yet we signed him with the notion of this guy is unbelievable in the playoffs, and we only got there once with him. So it's kind of like we had a nice run. We just missed out because he struck out on a, on a, a nasty pitch by Adam Wainwright, which you got to give more credit to Adam Wainwright than anything else. And yet we're sitting here going like, but the guy's so clutching in, in the playoffs, but we can't see it. It's not until he goes to the Yankees and other teams where they go back to the playoffs.
2: Yeah, no, I, I listen, man. I totally get it. I mean, it's not necessarily his fault. That they didn't get other opportunities in the postseason. No, that's the Wellpont's fault.
3: We can, well, I mean, we can say that over and over and over. It's the same thing that they they listen when they promised David Wright the world, sign with us, stay here, we'll do all this, and what do they do? They bring Michael Kedire, his buddy, and that's about no, it. I
2: I get it. I, it one and they thing push that's... the fences back. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> in two thousand eight, which I don't know if it's fair to call that a collapse. Oh seven was the collapse, but whatever. Mets lost the pennant race in 2008. Carlos Beltran put the New York Mets on his back and said, all right, guys, I'm going to carry you through September. And here are the numbers just to back up my point. September of 08, as the Mets are trying to win a pennant race, Carlos Beltran hit 344. He had a 1,086 OPS. He hit six home runs and drove in 19 runs. And he did that in September slash October of 2008, including hitting a home run in the final game at Chase Stadium that came back to help tie the game, if memory serves correct, against the Marlins. But it didn't matter because Scott Schoenweiss sucks. He gave up two home runs and the Mets lost the game. And that to me is a lot of what happened to Carlos in 2008. I know it's not the playoffs but he performed at a high level in games that mattered down the stretch of the season. It just, it didn't work. But look, one of the great free agent signings in the history of the franchise. Moving on, we got two closers. Number one, Frankie Rodriguez. Three years, $37 million. After the Mets had no bullpen in 2008, they said, let's go get Uh, K-Rod. I mean, it was an okay signing. Frankie in 09 was fantastic until the Luis Castillo drop. That was his first blown save of the season. He got off to a great start, ends up saving 35 games that year. The problem for Frankie, and this hurt him throughout his tenure, the Mets weren't that good. So you look at a closer, and it's like, well, what can you do if you're not given a lead? In 2010, he saved 25 games with a 2-1 ERA, and then in 2011, the Mets knew they weren't going anywhere, so after his 23 saves, they flipped him. They traded him to the Brewers' It's not a bad signing. It's not his fault, though. I think if Frankie Rodriguez was the closer on a good Met team, maybe we view him differently. But the team just wasn't any good.
3: No, I agree with that. And then, then there was the issues with the. I um, think there was some issues again. There's always his father-in-law.
2: Is that yeah. what it was when he punched his father-in-law in the face or something like that? There,
3: there's always something going on. It could never be just perfect. Ever, you know, this guy's great. This guy's amazing. He he makes our life amazing. Uh yeah, no, K Rod, I, I agree. Like he came in here. It was he, did he sign right after the seventy-five uh saves? Yes. Yeah. And that's he, never pre- he saved
2: uh, a, a ridiculous <laughs> amount of games for the Angels. And then the Mets are like, let's go add him. And they signed him and they signed J uh, traded for JJ putts. So the right. Mets tried to really address their bullpen issues, which had a lot to do with their failures in two thousand eight. And Putz wasn't any good. And Frankie Rodriguez, like I said, he was good. And then well, he sort of fell off after the Castillo drop.
3: Didn't Putz have the uh, the elbow, the, the the stuff in his elbow? He had like particles in his elbow. So it basically shut him down for the first year, right? Yeah, he wasn't
2: that good. He, was, he got hurt. And when he pitched, he wasn't that good. This one's a little trickier. Billy Wagner. Mm-hmm. The Mets signed Billy Wagner to a four-year, $43 million deal after the 05 season. They realized they needed a real closer. Braden Looper wasn't cutting it. And Billy was mostly good. He saved 40 games in 06, 224 ERA. He saved 34 games in 07, 263 ERA. In 08, he got hurt in September. He ended up saving 27 games with a two three ERA. If he doesn't get hurt, The Mets probably make the postseason. He misses all of 2009. He comes back to throw like an inning, and then they trade him. Look, he got healthy, and they said, great. Now we're sending your ass to Boston. (laughs) Uh, The only reason I have negative feelings towards Billy is Soto Gucci. Soto Gucci beat him in Game 2 of the National League Championship Series. And I believe that the Mets lack of faith in Billy Wagner is the reason why Aaron Heilman started a second inning in game seven. And that's when he allowed the home run to Yadier Molina. So I sort of blame Billy for some of the failures in that NLCS in 06, but there's no arguing that during the regular season for a short period of time, and he was older at the time, he was a very good closer for the team during the regular season.
3: I I liked Billy Wagner a lot. I thought that he had a lot of um, good moments again, but it, I, the '08 that was that was huge. I remember that him going down, and you just after witnessing 2007 with a team that you thought was good enough to get to the playoffs, and they just collapsed. You lose your closure like that. You just feel like there's
2: there's no there's no end in sight. They ended up using Luis Ayala to try to Ooh. save games down the stretch of the year. That year, it was not a pretty scene. It's only a kick. How about this one? And and this is a minor league deal, but it's, to me, it's a free agent deal. He was a minor league free agent and the New York Mets came to terms with, I mean, you could argue, I'll tell you right now, you could argue this is the best free agent signing in the history of the Mets minor league deal, R.A. Dickey, R.A. Dickey gets signed to a minor league deal. And in 2010 makes 26 starts. 11-9, 2-8-4 11 and 9 2.84 ERA. Whoa, something's going on here. 2011 makes 32 starts, those 208 innings. 8 and 13 3.28 ERA. Wow, Ari Dickey's established himself as a pretty good starter in this league and then in his final year with the Mets year 3, he makes 33 starts, he throws 233 innings, he goes 20 and 6 with a 2.73 ERA and wins the National League Cy Young. Uh, Ra Dickey's trying to negotiate. It's weird. So Dickey signs as a minor league deal, but then he can't just get to free agency because you still own his arbitration rights. So the Mets and Dickey, Dickey wants a new contract. He's like, hey, let's work out an extension. And the Mets are like, yeah, let's trade your ass to Toronto. <laughs> and obviously they got a lot back. They got Travis Starno. They got Noah Syndergaard. And so Dickey spends three years with the Mets, signs as a minor league deal, and has three Awesome years as a starting pitcher. Bro, that's as good as it gets.
3: Dude, Cy Young. I mean, none of these other guys won. I mean, maybe they made some all-star games, but they didn't win MVPs. No, we
2: don't have an MVP. Cy Young, let's go. This one is also, I think, um, pound for pound, a really solid signing. Curtis Granderson. The Mets signed Curtis Granderson before the 2014 season to a four-year contract. He goes out in 2014, does not have a good year. First year with the Mets. What else is new? 155 games, 20 home runs, 66 RBIs, just a 715 OPS. But in 2015, and this is where I think we look at him as the guy, he's the leadoff hitter in 2015. Wait, was he the leadoff hitter in 2015? I'm, uh, now I'm trying to – yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, got my memory straight. Yeah, Leadoff hitter in 2015. Because he was hitting crazy home runs, right? Yeah, yeah. What? Well yeah. – He had 26 home runs, had an 821 OPS, was getting on base at a great clip. Uh, Curtis Granderson plays 157 games. Mets obviously go all the way to the World Series. 2016, he starts to play center field again. Makes an incredible play in that wild card game, helping Noah Syndergaard get through, I think it was the 6th or 7th inning, I'm trying to remember. hits 30 home runs, but only drives in 59 runs, which was very strange. 779 OPS. Two thousand seventeen. Plays very well, lead 15 OPS. They trade him at the trade deadline to the LA Dodgers. Three and a half solid years, great attitude. Met fans loved him. Big part of the 15 team. I think that goes down in history as a good signing. Oh, no question. And again, like you, the one thing that I will always say
3: is, like, for example, um, you, we talked about some free agents that we brought in that didn't fit the team because the team was just bad. Like You could bring in a great closer if you don't have a big, good team. If you can't get to the closer, it's not going to help. Curtis Granderson was a guy that, at the time, they needed that type of player, and he helped them get to the playoffs
2: twice. It was an yes. important role. No doubt about it. Very good free agent signing. One of the rare guys who I think is liked by both Met fans and Yankee fans. There's not a lot of guys who kind of fit that mold, and Curtis Granderson are certainly one of them. The Grandy Man. And finally, Met fans would love this signing because this guy went out there. He signed a three-year contract. Yes, three-year contract. And I remember during this offseason, the debate was Bartolo Colon or Philip Hughes, the former Yankee Phil Hughes. The Mets decided to go with the 41-year-old Bartolo Colon. And he went out there and in three seasons made every start and then became a cult hero when he hit. As Gary Cohn called it, the greatest home run in the history of baseball. But think about this with Bartolo. He got better every single season. In 2014, 31 starts, 15 wins, a 409 ERA, 200 innings. 2015, 31 starts, 14 wins, 416 ERA, 194 innings. And then his best year (laughs) comes in his last year at freaking 43 years old. 15-8, 3-4-3 15-8, 3-4-3 three, three ERA, 191 innings. If the Mets win the wild-card game against the Giants, Big Bart is making postseason starts. How about that return on a three-year contract? Not bad, eh? It's crazy because
3: so far we found the gems to be older guys on the tail end of their career that just kind of rebounded. That's kind of gross.
2: Dude, it's crazy <laughs> that... I'm starting to think that Rick Reed, R.A. Dickey, and Bartolo Colon have to be on the Mount Rushmore free agent signings. One guy's a replacement player who's a Journeyland minor leaguer. The other one is this old knuckleballer who nobody wants. And the last guy is a 41-year-old fat ass. And those three guys, you may have to say, Or are the Mount Rushmore of free agent signings?
3: You know what? I'm putting Bobby Bolden on now,
2: too. Screw it. Those are the four. (laughs) (laughs) That's our list. So to me, it's Beltran's easy. Beltran's a lot. Yeah. I don't think there's any doubt. You know, no matter what you think about him, Carlos Beltran is the greatest free agent signing in the history of the Mets. You know, I think that Cologne and Dickey, for a short period of time, they were very solid, especially Dickey. I mean, Dickey went out one of a Cy Young. I get it. But when you talk about the overall impact on a franchise, uh, uh, Carlos Beltran is the guy. Uh, and that's why for anyone who says negative things about him, it's not close. He's the greatest free agent signing in the history of the Mets. It's tough with these other guys because even though they're fr- specifically Rick Reed and R.A. Dickey, even though they are free agents, letter of the law, they're free agent signings. It's so different when you're talking about a guy that nobody wanted. Now, it's different than buying kind of like that big-ticket item. So they count, don't get me wrong. I think Dickey has to be there because Rick Reed had two good years and you know kind of fell off a little bit. Dickey never fell off with the Mets, and the Mets got out at the right time. So not only was Beltran a great free agent signing and Dickey was a free agent signing, they then were able to turn them in at the end into key pieces of the next era of Met Baseball. Now, say what you want about Noah Syndergaard and Travis Darno now, those guys contributed in a big way in 2015 and beyond. Zach Wheeler, not necessarily 2015, but contributed in a pretty big way until the Wilpons got cheap and they didn't resign him. So oddly, I not only think about the performance that Carlos Beltran and R.A. Dickey had, but I think about the return the Mets got on the investment when they were able to trade them off. So... Dickey and Beltron, to me are easy, and then I kind of fight. You know, Ventura. It's only one good year. I'm never putting Glavin there. I'm not putting Benia there. I'm not putting Murray there. I think I do have to put Rick Reed. Okay, so I'm at Beltron, Dickey, and Reed. I can't go all the way with Cologne. I, I know that you guys want to do it. I can't do it. So my fourth guy on the Mount Rushmore of Met free agent signings would actually be Curtis Granderson. I think I'm going to have to give it to Curtis because lead-off hitter on a team that went to the World Series. That ain't bad. That's pretty good. So my Mount Rushmore of Met free agent signings would be Carlos Beltran, Curtis Granderson, R.A. Dickey, and Rick Reed. Hoff, what
3: say you? So I want to say Rick Reed just because the story, and I remember the the turmoil he went through. Like sometimes there's some players that don't deserve to get crapped on, but he definitely did because he was a replacement player, and a lot of people didn't like that about him. So I think he got a bad, not a bad reputation, but I think he just was outcasted throughout the league for quite some time, if I'm correct. I want to give it to him, but I can't. I think you're right. Carlos Beltran is a no-brainer. R. A. Dickey's a Cy Young. I mean, we've had a few of those, which is great for our, our franchise. But as a free agent signing at that age, you got to give it to R. A. Dickey. Um, I'm gonna agree. Curtis Granderson, definitely up there because I just the, he's somebody that, at the time. It's like when you want a player and they go out and bring him in, and then he performs at a high level. I know he didn't do it. He wasn't perfect, especially the one year where he we went. you said he had thirty something home runs, fifty nine RBIs. It wasn't perfect, but still, like he performed well enough that got us to the playoffs, helped us out, made key plays. That's why I'm putting Robin Ventura on my Mount Rushmore as well, because I'm never gonna forget about that ground rule double home run, like it just yeah. the, or the, the the home run ground rule double. Like, it's to me. That's a moment that's going to live on with the Mets. And he gave us a lot of moments, and he gave us a lot of grand slams, and that just year was special.
2: Yeah. No, it's it's, it's tough to keep Robin Ventura off because even though it's a four-year contract and he really only had one awesome year, that year was truly awesome. Uh, you're right. The grand slam single, the the two grand slams and a doubleheader, the clutch hit on that Saturday night against the Pirates. The great defense that really led to the greatest defensive infield of all time. Yeah, you're right. So who should I take off? God damn it. See, Hoff's good sometimes. Sometimes he convinces me. Sometimes I convince him. He convinced me. I'm not taking Beltron off. I'm not taking Granderson off. I can't. I so Yeah, I guess I'm taking Rick Reed off. You know what? Screw it. I'm sticking with what I said. Thank you, Robin. <laughs> you just missed it. You like my uh I got presidents not on Mount Rushmore that I like. All right, that's all you are, Robin.
3: You're close, but just not not enough.
2: Yeah. Nah, it's he's a good one. Now nah, there's no question. He's a good one. It goes back to the old argument. How much do you need success with not short of a championship because none of these guys won for the for the signing to be successful. You know, like, how many years does that guy need to perform at a high level for you to say, okay, it was worth it, that was good? Because in Ventura's case, it was a four-year contract. They traded him before the fourth year, and he wasn't nearly as good in two of the years. So, really, it was one awesome, awesome season.
3: Right, and here's the thing. is like I looked through this list of guys, you know – I'm never going to sit there and say that all these guys were special uh, throughout baseball. We've talked about retiring numbers, Hall of Famers, some of them okay. But like, the one person that I think has to be up there for Mets retirement as far as number-wise go, I think that'd be Carlos Beltran. I think a lot of people you know, look at the way things ended in 2006, looked at how the team didn't do that well. But the guy put up such good numbers as a, as a free agent, like he put up amazing numbers for the Mets. He yeah, really he did. He,
2: he has a very complicated legacy, as we laid out. He's you can't argue how good he was. You can't argue how productive he was. But for a myriad of reasons, there's a mixed feeling towards him. Even though you know we spend a lot of time during these off seasons dreaming about free agent signings, talking about sign this guy, sign that guy, and, and let this list be your guide it's tough for that guy to perform nearly at your level because our list was not littered with all these incredible stars who performed high. Now, a lot of that is the Mets haven't dipped their toes much in a free agency in their past, but it takes a lot for it to be successful. And Carlos ultimately was successful. It's just there are things in his legacy that some Met fans really can't get past. But the one thing we should all agree on, as we went through all these different free agent signings, Love him or hate him, he is the greatest free agent signing in the history of the New York Mets. Hopefully, today's happy, positive podcast puts a smile on everybody's face. Thank you for listening to the happy edition of Rico Bronya.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.